Welcome to the Girl at the Game podcast. We are your hosts, Gabrielle, founder of Girl at the Game, and Al of Nessen. We have stuff to talk about. Yeah, so we know we told you guys that we were rolling out an episode with Keith Full today, but we decided to bump that back. It's still going to come out this week, but we wanted to push up an interview we did with MLB agent Rachel Luba, just for sake of relevance. Yeah, we recorded with her on Thursday, and she gave us incredible insight into what is going on with the MLB and MLBPA standoff that's happening right now, MLB owners not wanting to pay the players, the players not wanting to take a second major pay cut. It was just super relevant and she gave us a great inside scoop. We just couldn't wait to share it, especially since as we're recording this intro right now on Tuesday afternoon, the baseball world is basically spiraling down the toilet. So MLB has finally given its Players Association a proposal for the economic plan to get back to play, right? Yeah, which we thought that they had given them a while ago based on how the media was reporting the situation. Reporting like the 50-50 revenue share plan that apparently the Players Association never even received. MLB scrapped it. And today they put forward a proposal MLB gave the MLBPA their proposal. The MLBPA is like, this is ridiculous. They're just not going to agree to it. Meanwhile, you have players like Marcus Stroman, who tweeted an hour ago, this season is not looking promising, keeping the mind and body ready regardless. Time to dive into some life after baseball projects. Hope everyone is staying safe and healthy. Brighter times remain ahead, exclamation point. When you have one of the bigger names in baseball already saying it's not looking good, a lot of people are now assuming that the deal is not going to get done and that there won't be baseball in 2020. Definitely not at this point, it seems like by July 4th. And we talk about that timeline with Rachel, but it's just a huge bummer because this kind of stuff doesn't need to happen. Yeah, the Players Association isn't interested in MLB's proposal for a sliding scale revenue system where the highest paid players are going to be earning up to 50% less on a prorated scale for however many games they end up playing. And then you'll have the lowest paid making a prorated salary pretty similar to whatever their contract guaranteed them. The MLBPA isn't having that. And Rachel's perspective really gives us insight as to why. And you see it also with the way that teams are handling the current situation, because as we know, you have to be quite wealthy to own a baseball team. Most baseball teams are now valued at over a billion dollars. For example, the Kansas City Royals were sold last fall for upwards of a billion dollars, even though... They haven't won anything since 2015, and they were one of the worst teams in baseball over the last two years. They're still valued at over a billion dollars. And MLB saw over $10 billion in revenue last season, which I'm fairly certain was a record for them, a record high. MLB has the money, so acting like they don't when their finances are public, it's such a bad look. Teams like the Oakland A's are furloughing scouts and employees While the Dodgers announced today that they are not furloughing or laying off a single employee, they will be doing pay cuts for employees, but only employees who are making over $75,000 a year. Anyone below that is not taking a pay cut. 
teams like the Twins have announced that they're not furloughing anyone, whether or not there's a baseball season or not. It's just important to recognize which teams are choosing to keep their employees and treat them well and which teams aren't because the bottom line is that all of these teams could choose to take care of their employees and some of them just aren't. It just really sucks to be watching baseball destroy itself. Let's get into it with Rachel, who comes from the perspective of not only someone that has worked with the MLB Players Association, but is now representing the players directly in all of this. She's Trevor Bauer's agent, and she knows firsthand just how crazy baseball can get, especially representing one of the biggest and most vocal and unique players. We were super excited to have her on, and the conversation was really enlightening and just fun. Really great to talk to such a badass woman who is doing things her own way in the baseball world. We have on today Rachel Luba. She is a badass sports agent. She's Trevor Bauer of the Cincinnati Reds agent. She started her own agency and she does things very differently than your typical boys club agent. Rachel, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me, guys. Our pleasure. I think we just want to dive right in. Baseball is kind of a mess right now. And you were recently on Bloomberg Business of Sports. You said that from your perspective, it's clear that owners are kind of using the media to construct a narrative that players are being selfish by not wanting to take yet another pay cut. And they're basically trying to use the media to put pressure on the players and players are feeling really attacked. As an agent to baseball players, what is your perspective? What's your inside view of what's going on right now in baseball? It's definitely a weird situation, but I guess it's clear that one side is obviously using the media to create leverage on their end. From an agent's perspective, we're in close communication with the union. And as far as we know, and what we've been told from the union themselves is that there hasn't even been any sort of economic proposal that's even been made to the union and players which means that MLB has not at all, they've proposed, they've sent over a proposal regarding the operations and procedure for returning to play in terms of testing, like health, safety, all that stuff. But in terms of anything economic related, there's been zero proposal at all, which obviously then suggests that the owners or MLB are leaking to the media to this possibility or, you know, that they want to do the 50-50 rev share or whatever it is. And I'm sure as you guys have seen, they put a ton of pressure on players, kind of pin the fans up against them, making them seem greedy. Which is pretty crazy when you think about it, that the owners of baseball teams are multi-multi-millionaires, billionaires. The Red Sox, for example, they're valued at over $3 billion by an ownership that's valued at well over $6 billion. And it's kind of crazy that fans are saying players should just suck it up and play for no money, backing the owners instead of players who during regular times might be their favorite player on the team whose jersey they wear to the ballpark. And then today you have Jerry DePoto of the Mariners saying players should just suck it up and play. Aside from the fact that you've said that owners are kind of manipulating the perception right now, why do you think it is that fans think they're kind of like owners themselves that they side with ownership over people that they root for their, you know, for years at a time, go to games just to see them play. 
Yeah, it's a really unique dynamic, I guess. Sports is the one industry that I can really think of where fans tend to, because of their allegiance to a team, tend to almost view themselves when it comes to situations like this as owners themselves, right? They they see it as their team, right? It's when you trade a player that you really love, fans get really upset because it's like, that's our player. They have this sense of pride and connection to a specific team. So when players are maybe suggesting that they don't want to take another pay cut or, you know, whatever it is, Fans kind of look at it as like they're offended because it's their team and they, like I said, somewhat feel this sense of ownership. You don't really see that, I think, in any other industry, like where a big business owners um, who are demanding some sort of change or pay cut or whatever it is with their employees, you don't usually see the public siding with the owners. It's usually they tend to side more with the workers, but this would be the one scenario, I think, where this tends to happen and it kind of sucks, but it is what it is. It's definitely been pretty interesting from a Red Sox perspective, just because the same owners that a few months ago, Red Sox fans were saying sell the team because they got rid of Mookie Betts and David Price and Brock Holt, Rick Porcello. They basically demolished a huge percentage of the core of the team. And fans are saying sell the team. And now you have the same fans saying that these players should just suck it up and come back and play. It's been pretty crazy to see on social media, all of these players like Blake Snell getting a lot of hate, Trevor Bauer, these guys who are being asked to risk their lives. And meanwhile, you know, not everybody makes the kind of money that Mike Trout makes or that Garrett Cole makes. So basically owners are asking, it's a very high risk situation with now what owners are trying to make like a much lower reward situation, basically saying you should just be happy to have a job. You should just be happy you get to play baseball. I think a lot of people forget too that a lot of the players now, especially with this change that we've seen in the last few years where there's less money being spent on free agents, right? They're trying to acquire younger guys who are cost controlled which means that if they're cost controlled, they're usually making the major league minimum, which would be around $550,000. They're in the top tax bracket, so they'll give half of that to taxes. And they already then conceded to play at a prorated amount, which means cut it in half again. So I think people forget that a lot of these guys aren't making millions and millions of dollars. And at the end of the day, they're asking them to burden the loss that the owners would ordinarily take when owners, because of how it's set up with the collective bargaining agreement, owners never share the profits when they have great years. And they're able to kind of capitalize, like they make their money off of capital which doesn't really have a shelf life. Like if they have a bad year this year, they can make up more of it next year, right? Whereas players, they have a shelf life on their earning potential. The older they get, the less that they can earn. Missing out, they make their money on labor. So if they don't have a year where they can do work, then they won't make money. They can't make it up with double the labor next year, right? So it's a weird dynamic, but I appreciate the people that understand at least where the players are coming from. That being said, I mean, you said MLB hasn't even really proposed an economic plan and the rumors that are coming out are just really not realistic for players to hop on board with. Do you see MLB's proposed return date of games starting July 4th feasible from your perspective right now or based on just how slow things are moving? Uh, 
Uh, I go back and forth with this one. It's at a, this weird standstill right now. It's just a lot of rumors. There hasn't been any real substantive talks, but things can pick up really quickly, right? The second that they actually do make a proposal or all of a sudden we might be waiting two weeks and then within three days, it's all said and done. It depends on, I guess, how long you think they're going to need for spring training. I think a lot of players expect that there's going to be about a month of spring training. So at this point, do I think that in the next, what is it, like nine days or something that before it's June 1st, that they're going to come to an agreement? It's looking less like it, but who knows? And then they also need to give them reasonable time to move out to their home cities or wherever the spring training is going to be. And it sucks for a lot of players right now because they're in this weird spot where a lot of them are paying rent at a place, assuming they're not back at a, a place that they own. Like they're paying rent at a place that they wouldn't normally be paying rent at because they're probably in a city that's not the home city of where they play during this time of the year. A lot of them might be paying for the next month already of rent or something just given that we're reaching the end of the month. So to then ask them to basically pick up and move everything last minute, it's gonna be tough. But to answer your question, I mean, each day that we kind of get closer and closer to June, it looks less like it. But I'm hoping by first, second week of July that we'll see baseball again. Who knows though? I know it's just like every day there's a new non-update that comes out. Yeah, tell me about it. As an agent, how do you think this will impact free agency? it's going to impact it, which makes me feel stronger about my belief that players shouldn't take less than they've already agreed to. Because no matter what, we're going to see a hit next year in the open market, right? Or anyone who has to, not even in the open market, but like salary arbitration, whoever has to get their salary renegotiated next year, they're going to take a hit because I don't see a scenario where players agree to, let's say a 50-50 rev share and then owners go back to acting like, okay, nothing happened this last year, we'll just spend freely. They're not going to. So you're going to see a hit probably next year, no matter what. That being said, I think, look, there are going to be a lot of talented guys, hot commodities on the open market that teams do want to lock up for long-term deals. Teams that if they value a player enough, especially for a long-term deal, they can backload the deal and make sure that they are doing well financially for the next few years before really having to pay that person while still, you know, getting him to agree to a deal and locking him up long-term. So I don't think it's the stars that are doing long-term deals. I'm not sure it'll really make a huge difference, but for your middle-class players, yeah, they're going to take a hit for sure. Pretty crazy also, because I think we're talking short-term and long-term. We're operating as if this is something that is just going to go away. Like it's just a one-year situation when a lot of medical experts have said a second wave of coronavirus could come in the summer or even in the winter, and it could be even worse than the first one. Baseball just kind of seems from the outside anyway to be acting as if this is just a 2020 issue, even though they did say that they're also going to shorten the 2021 draft. But do you think that this is going to have a long-term impact on how baseball operates, how player negotiations go down, and just baseball in general? Do you think that this is going to change baseball permanently? Like things that they decide to do this year, for example, a universal DH? I think it's a good question. I would say there are things right now, and I've kind of talked to different players about this too, just in the beginning, that 
this is kind of a, in a weird way, like a cool time to experiment with stuff without it having any sort of lasting impact, right? Because if you experiment with something in the next CBA negotiations, I mean, that's a bargained in thing that you have to live with for four years, whether it works out well or not. And sometimes it can set you up, take away some bargaining power in the next cycle or whatever it is. But this is this weird chance where we have this year where they can try things, try something new, like, for example, Universal D8. So there's a chance, look, like if it goes over well, if it fans seem to like it, if players, a lot of things have to kind of go right for that to become a thing. But if they try it this year, if that gets kind of pushed through and then we experience it and see what it's like, there's a much better chance of it becoming an official thing and carrying on for years to come. So yeah, there's definitely some things I think that will, I'm not sure the postseason format Possibly, like it might open up for some talks in the next CBA of changing the postseason format if they do do that this year. But yeah, it's going to change the draft. It won't necessarily change it. I think, you know, for the next several years or from now on, they're going to just change how they do the draft. But there's going to be some carryover effects and how they're cutting back the draft. And you'll see it kind of for years to come, the side effects of it. So I feel like we can talk about this stuff all day because there's just nothing concrete. But the reason we really wanted to have you on today is to talk about the career you've built for yourself. I think it was in November that Trevor signed you as his agent and Luba Sports kind of arrived on the scene. I'd love to know what made you decide to pursue this industry. So I was a gymnast growing up from the time I was two years old, competed in college at UCLA. My freshman year, I lived on the same floor as a bunch of the baseball players. So became good friends with them, grew up with three brothers. So always used to kind of hanging out with the guys, being around guys. And, you know, as a gymnast, I always knew there's not a lifelong career in that. When you're done, either after the Olympics or college, you kind of have to transition to a different job or actually make money. So I always knew I wanted to work in sports. And then I think as a gymnast, that was always an individual sport. College was somewhat of a team sport, but not so much. And a lot of people usually want to be a part of a team. They want that camaraderie and they want to work for a team. That never really intrigued me as much. Again, just because of always being an individual sport athlete. So I always knew I like, I wanted to work with the individual athlete. Kind of got this idea started as I got to know the baseball players better and saw the ins and outs of their industry, what their agents did for them, what they didn't do for them. Like I was, it made me interested in it. And I ended up one of the baseball players I was good friends with when I was in college introduced me to his agent, just like so a pick his brain. And I remember like the first thing he said to me, kicked his feet up on his desk and kind of leaned back. He's like, well, seems like, you know, what you want to do. So I'm not going to sugarcoat it. He's like, you're a girl. And I just stopped and I was like, yeah, I'm well aware, buddy. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> Seriously? And, yeah, it's it awkward. Like <laughs> I'm 20, 19 years old or something like, and I'm, I know I'm a girl. And I was like, all right, well, that's the best you got. And he's like, well, what I'm saying is like, it's not, it's just like, you're not welcome in this industry because it's just the reality of it. It's a boys club. And I was like, all right, well, cool. Like, is that it? Like, I was just ready. <laughs> he's like, well, I guess if I'm going to give you any advice, it's if you want any credibility, get a law degree. So I, I think he thought he dissuaded me. I literally walked out of there and I was like, started looking up law school. I want to apply to law school. And I literally wrote my personal statements um, for law school all about, I want to be a baseball agent. Apparently I need 
a law degree for men to take me seriously. So that's why I'm going to law school. Like I made it abundantly clear. I'm not trying to be a traditional lawyer, anything like that. Nothing against them, but it's not why I'm here. There is no shortage of action going on at our exclusive partner, betonline.ag. NASCAR is back and BetOnline has hundreds of games, events, and sports to still get in on. You can bet on simulated NFL, NBA, and UFC, or even participate in a $10,000 Madden Bracket Challenge, a March Madness-style NFL simulation tournament you can enter for free. And coming up next Sunday, BetOnline has ex-Chicago Bulls Ron Harper, Horace Grant, Bill Cartwright, and Craig Hodges joining them to discuss the Michael Jordan documentary on what they are calling The Final Dance. Visit the website or use your mobile device and join today to receive your new welcome bonus and check out all the action. Bet online, your online wagering solution. And so that was kind of literally from the beginning of law school. That was my mindset. I tried trial practice and some of those things just for fun and for the experience. Professors used to try to convince me to do clerkships and just try out like traditional laws. Like, listen, this, this is what I want to do. And a lot of it was because I think Like I had some other agents who would kind of talk to me and tell me you should be a marketing agent. Like that's where, you know, there's so many women in that. And it's a great fit for women to have families, to do all these things. And not to say that that's not true, but it pissed me off because when anyone tells me, someone suggests like something else for me to do, it just makes me hate it more. My family learned that quickly. Like when I was little, that's not how she operates. It's not how to get through to her. She'll do the exact opposite of whatever you tell her. And whatever someone told me or like didn't want me to do, it just made me more interested. I think there's a lot of people who are kind of like that. So it made me more and more frustrated. Like, why can't I be a baseball agent? Why can't I negotiate like on-field contracts? That wasn't to say that I wasn't open-minded to why are men telling me this? Like, there might be a reason. And I just wanted to learn it for myself. And the more I started kind of learning about the industry and gaining some experience, I realized that the only reason that they don't want women in here is, I mean, I think largely because they're threatened by it, because there aren't women in there. And they all offer the same thing, more or less. They're just different dudes behind the agency name, but they all offer the exact same thing. And if you put a female in there right off the bat she offers something different like she is different she sets herself apart and that's what all these agencies kind of struggle to do it's like how do you separate yourself and a female does and it's polarizing I see like the downside I I understand why men are hesitant about it but I always I started to find quickly that it was more so I was struggling to convince agents that it would be okay rather than players themselves. The players that I knew never seemed to have a problem with it. They were like, look, if you can do the job, why not? Where it was like the agents didn't like it. And so kind of then at that point, it made me think, all right, why am I wasting so much time trying to convince an agent that my gender is not a problem so that I can then go and convince a player to sign with me? The player is my target client, not the agent. So if I can cut the agent out, just convince them myself. So that was kind of one of the things that led me to, I'm just going to do it on my own. And the other thing was just, I saw after being at the union too, just how inefficient a lot of the way that agencies operate. And, you know, again, like being different, being a female, everyone's so critical of my gender always. And like critical of me kind of made me critical of how they do things. And is this really the best way? And just made me kind of think like there might be a better way to do it. So I think I figured, look, my gender is already going to disrupt the industry to a degree. Like, might as well just go like full blown disrupt it all. At this point, like, I just 
might as well. So I went for it. That's so badass. Also crazy that that guy literally just said, well, you're a girl. You have no idea how many. I've I've had had some of those. And you are not old, like at all. You're telling this story and it's as if we're talking to like one of the pioneers of women in this industry from like the 60s. Like that's just wild. People warned me going in. They were like, I mean, that was my first real experience. I'm like, whoa, shit. Okay. Like, I get it. This is where we're at in society, in the baseball industry. And he did tell me that he was like, listen, the rest of the world might be much more progressive. He goes, but baseball's not. And I was like, all right. So he, he wasn't wrong. So I kind of went in always knowing this, but yeah, in the beginning, you like want to give people the benefit of the doubt. And you're like, all right, it's 2020 or, you know, it wasn't 2020 then it was 2015 or something, but you would think there's no way people actually still feel this way. And especially just because a lot of society is much more progressive now, but then yeah, you step into this other world and like, they're very behind the times and the things that people will say to you is sometimes mind-blowing I did some numbers research because I was curious in 2013 only six of the 400 MLBPA certified agents were women which was both shocking to me and and also not shocking I wrote an article once about the female pitcher who struck out Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig back to back and the day after she did it the commissioner of baseball voided her contract saying that baseball was too strenuous for a woman after she had struck out arguably the two best hitters in baseball back-to-back in her professional debut. But not only are you, you know, you've had a unique path to becoming a sports agent, but you also operate pretty differently from traditional sports agents. Can you tell us a little bit about how Luva Sports structures its agent-athlete relationship? Because you're not doing what most or any agencies are doing. And I think that your model is so smart and so mutually beneficial. It's not a novel idea. I didn't create it. It's literally how most law firms operate. They charge billable hours like for the work that they do and it makes them incentivized to do work for you because that's how they earn money. My mom does that. She's a lawyer and she's, yeah. she's always saying, I have to go bill my clients now. Yeah. When you're in school, you're trained like, you know, these billable hours and this idea of, you know, you get paid for the hours that you put in and the work. There's a lot of other industries that do it as well, but just kind of got me thinking. And I always saw that I would talk to players that I was good friends with. They would tell me what is being done, what their agent's doing for them, you know, especially during the times where it wasn't a contract negotiation. And then when I was at the union, I saw how much time was put into a contract by these agents. And it just made me realize, like, especially for some of these guys signing big contracts, the amount of money, the percentage that they're paying their agent is kind of crazy when you think about the amount of time that is actually spent like in a full year how much time the agent actually spends on the player you'd be surprised it's not that much and that's largely because they don't have an incentive after they lock in that contract for their on the field performance there's no real incentive to give them all these things that they promise like that they advertise that their agency provided these full service agencies Let's take Garrett Cole, for example. He locks in a 10-year deal. Let's say the very next day, Garrett leaves to go to a different agency. Boris has locked in that entire deal. It doesn't matter. The new agent won't get anything. So a lot of times, like agents will make sure to spend time on a player when he's about to come up on a big contract because they want to lock in that deal. But then after that, it's like they don't have the incentive. And then Even if let's say a player's like, look, I want all these things and is very demanding. It's almost like they're almost 
de-incentivized to do work for them when, for example, Trevor Bauer tells Wasserman, who he was with before, he says, I want to be in five years the most internationally recognizable name in baseball. So imagine Wasserman goes and puts in all this time to do that for Trevor. And then you've got someone like Stanton, who's with Wasserman, but also went out and hired WME separately to do his marketing because Wasserman just didn't really focus on that area. He's paying the same percentage that Trevor's paying. Why doesn't he get the services too? Like, why should they spend more time on Trevor? Basically, everyone paying the same percentage when there's some players that rarely ever want anything to do with their agent. Like, they rarely talk to them. Why are they paying a ton? And then why are guys that are, you know, super high maintenance, they're paying the same as the guy who barely talks to them. And then the change in how kind of baseball operates now in the front offices, running these algorithms and, you know, figuring out their value. And you can't really argue as much with numbers anymore. And they're getting smart. And so the players are creating their value on field. And it's much different than how it used to be. And so that value, why should an agent profit from a player essentially who created his own value? And teams are more or less like paying what the numbers say their value is. So for me, I realized like it makes sense, pay for the value of my service, not for the value that the player creates himself on the field. Like, why should I profit off of that? I'm offering a service. I value it at this and you can pay, you pay for this. So I basically set it up like an hourly billable hours model, you know, more of an a la carte agency. So whatever you want, we kind of tailor fit it to you. Trevor is super high maintenance not a bad thing, but I can make a lot of money off him. But he gets a lot from me because he's paying for it. And I can kind of create the whole team around him. And I mean, just look at even in the last six months, like what he's been able to do with his brand and all that, you know, because he's got my whole team basically now helping him. Yeah, that's great. It seems like your structure is a very mutually beneficial relationship because you're potentially making a very large amount of money from someone like Trevor Bauer, who's very, as you say, high maintenance, and they're getting literally exactly what they want from you because it's all a cart. And it just seems like such a no brainer that other agencies would adopt, at least have a section of their agency that has that option because it would satisfy a lot of players. It kind of makes me think of like a Jerry Maguire model where he's very hands-on with Cuba Gooding Jr. because Cuba Gooding Jr. is super demanding And he's got Tom Cruise like running around in circles. But does it also mean that because like you said, a lot of agents, they only are around when their player needs something or like when it's contract time, does it mean that it's harder to work individually for you because you have clients that have a lot of needs versus clients that have fewer needs? You obviously have to spend a lot more time working with your clients than a lot of agents do. Look, I have to work harder for guys that want more, but that's how I make money. The nice part about the way that the structure is set up is that they're paying me, they're getting value. So if I get another client who's super high maintenance and wants all these things, like that's great. He's going to pay me for it. And then I can bring on other people to help and provide him with the services that he needs. So it allows me to expand. Yeah. You know, the more clients that need more attention, you know, because they are paying me, I can bring on more people. Whereas a traditional agency, they're recruiting a lot of these guys. They're in high school when they get drafted, they're in the minor leagues. 
but the amount that end up even making it to the big leagues and then making it three years in to hit arbitration, that's the first time that these agencies will even see a paycheck from them. So they're spending a lot of money and time or not really any time on these guys that aren't making any money for them. And then they're essentially charging the guys who are signing the big contracts a premium to subsidize for these guys who aren't making money. Whereas I just cut out anyone who's not really making me a profit. And that way I can give everybody the attention that they need. You sign Trevor Bauer to launch who, not even arguably, like Trevor is the most outspoken player in MLB and it's not close. And he's also a player that's like so innovative and is always trying to like pave the way for other players to do things different ways. So obviously you represent that for him with him signing. And I know that you guys were friends at UCLA, but still, what did it take for you to get him to kind of just dump his representation and hop on board with his old friend from college and just ride? It wasn't something that happened overnight. Like I'll tell you that. So we have been friends for like 10 years. When I first start talking about, you know, I want to be an agent and work in baseball, it was never like, I'm going to represent you. If anything, he just wanted to find a place for me and help me, you know, in the industry. I would say probably when I started working at the union was when we started kind of talking about this idea more. And then if I did my own thing and I brought up this idea of like this alternative kind of model. And like you said, he's a very forward thinking guy, very innovative. This is the same guy that 10 years ago was doing these weird warmups, long ball tosses. And everyone was like, who is this weirdo? Like, what's he doing? Everyone's like critical of it. Always like a little too like ahead of his time. And so he gets criticized. And then, you know, you see 10 years later, it's like, oh, everyone realizes it wasn't so crazy. He saw the value in it. And he's probably saw the value in it for the last two, three years. And so we would talk about it a lot. And he loves to talk about business and all that stuff. So lots of lots of talks about how this could be possible. How would you scale it? He would pick guys brains in the clubhouse about stuff. But he's a very loyal person. So I mean, even in the beginning, like I would just ask him, why were you with Wasserman? And, you know, he's like, look, like he's been there with me since, since the beginning. He's always been good to me, that kind of thing. Trevor never had like any intention of finding anybody else. You know, Wasserman did a great job for him. But it's not Wasserman. It was the model, I think, in the end that he realized, like, as he got older and started kind of expanding his interest in business and all of that, that he saw the value in a different model. And so he was quickly on board with this idea and a lot of it was convincing his family who I'm close with, but they're still like that. That's their, their son. Like they helped him choose his first agency, convincing them. Trust me, I can do this. I can know what I'm doing. I'm curious because I've read, you know, he is one of the most interesting and vocal players in baseball, which frankly, I think Baseball needs more of those because MLB doesn't do a very good job of marketing its own players. So the players clearly need to market themselves. Trevor's interviews, he's super unique in the things that he wants out of baseball, the things that he wants for baseball. And I remember reading somewhere that he said he only wanted one year contracts for his entire career. Is that something that's still true? And as his agent and someone who also doesn't operate on like a typical business model yourself, what do you think about him wanting a one year contract each year, his reasons behind it? You know, a lot of players, pitchers especially, want long-term contracts that locks them in so that they are guaranteed that money. What do you think about Trevor going completely the opposite direction of that? Shocker, Trevor going against the grain. Um, <laughs> yeah. No one saw that coming. 
I mean, to answer your question, I mean, first of all, he's coming up on his first free agent year. And I will just say that we are exploring all options. We want to be able to hand him a bunch of different possibilities and for him to decide. But, you know, just kind of to go back to his reasoning of why he wants these one-year contracts. I mean, first of all, this is a great time to be a pitcher or a player that wants that because teams look more favorably on that. If you have a short, a one-year contract with a guy, you're not risking much. Let's say, you know, you pay him a lot and it doesn't work out. You don't have to sign him again the next year. So it's a one-year loss. Whereas look at Garrett Cole. What if for some reason Garrett isn't Garrett anymore? That's a lot of money. So they're taking a huge risk. You mean like how Giancarlo wasn't Giancarlo anymore? Yeah. So, I mean, and this happens a lot of times with players and teams are paying guys for what they project they're going to do nowadays versus 10 years ago. They're paying guys based on what they did. Up until free agency, they were this kind of player. And so they lock in or they sign this guy for 10 years because he was so great before. A lot of times players, they get complacent. They get comfortable. They don't need to work as hard anymore. Whereas Trevor knows that, I mean, his personality is the type that he does better under pressure. He doesn't ever want to feel like he doesn't need to work hard because he's getting paid anyways. He wants to have that fire and drive to keep working hard and keep up his skills. And one of the other like really big reasons the one-year deal is so important to him is because for Trevor, and this is different, all different players have different reasons for you know why they want whatever deal they want or play in whatever city they want. For Trevor, what he values tremendously is playing for a winning team. And if he signs a one-year deal, assuming he's pitching well, it makes him a hot commodity on the trade market. Let's say he signs with Cincinnati and they're not in contention. They'll go and rent him out for the remainder of the year to a team that's in contention. So that gives him a chance to win a World Series. And then guess what? Once that season's over, he can go back and sign again with the Reds. Just do the same thing all over again. But it allows him this opportunity come the trade deadline to always be kind of a viable trade piece if the team he's on isn't in contention and he wants to play like for a winning team. He wants to be able to win World Series. Honestly, he'd be perfect for the Red Sox. I'm just saying. Seriously, I I would kill to have a decent quote in that locker room. (laughs) I would kill to have a decent arm in the rotation. We have a two-man starting rotation right now and Martin Perez is like a giant question mark. So basically we're pinning our hopes on Eduardo Rodriguez, who I love, but he can only pitch once every five games. So uh, Trevor Bauer, if you're interested, the Red Sox have like $3 billion. They're well under their limits this year. And uh, honestly, I think he'd be great here just because he's such a like spitfire. A lot of athletes just can't handle that Boston mentality, but I think he would just be so great. He's like exactly the kind of arm and personality that Bostonians would just love. You think because we've always thought and we've always been kind of wary of big markets because it could be worrisome given his personality and you put him in a big market with the media and it could either be really good or like disaster. If you did it five years ago, I would lean much more towards being a disaster. I think now he's learning how to use the media and himself, and I think it would be good for him. But if you asked me three years ago, I would have said, no, like we're getting <laughs> off the market. He, he doesn't do well with the media. I think it's changing a lot now. I actually think he would thrive in a big media market, but Boston could happen. It's funny that you say he's been like learning to use the media to his advantage because 
admittedly, especially after like the whole Twitter mishap where him and that college girl or high school girl, however old she was, were just going at it with each other. I thought Trevor Bauer was pretty annoying and kind of like douchey and a dick. But when he went on Pardon My Take this past winter, I did a complete 180 on him. And I was like, I actually love this guy. Like, he's great. What has it been like for you as his agent? Do you have to like hold him back with things he wants to say sometimes? How do you advise him to go about toning things down or just being himself? What's the balance like? I feel like you must just go toe to toe with him all the time. Yeah, very often. It's a lot easier now. He gets it more now. I will say, so 10 years ago, when you would talk to Trevor about how he used Twitter, he didn't care about anything other than baseball. So he used Twitter for however the hell he wanted to use it. And if it was to engage with people and him and his dad, they're both very witty. They're both very smart and they love to kind of banter with each other. And so there's this rapport that they have and Trevor kind of used it on Twitter, but was often misunderstood the way he used it. You know, he would banter with people, but people didn't necessarily get it or he would make them look stupid because he's really smart and can be witty and is good at making people look stupid, but people don't like to look stupid, right? Like they like to give it, they don't like to take it. But the problem was he didn't care. He was like, I only care about baseball. He didn't care about anything else. What people thought of him, he didn't care. Now he's starting to see that he has all these businesses and it matters what people think because it matters, if anything, just for his businesses to thrive. And it's important that, you know, you're not just completely hated. And the other thing was he doesn't mind being polarizing or people disagree with him. The problem was, and what bothered me the most, was that he was completely misunderstood. I mean, I can't tell you how many people felt the same way you felt, Alex. Like, they did not like him. And I would ask him, like, why? What is it that you don't like about him? And more times than not, it was just like the things that they read or they heard. But I don't think I've met really anybody who has given him a fair chance just to get to know him or talk to him one time that came out of that was like, I hate that guy. Like he sucks. It's usually that no one gives him a chance and people kind of misrepresent the things that he says in the media. And he wasn't careful about what he said. And if you look at like his Twitter, the DMs, the tweets that he gets from people, so much hate. It can be, I mean, it's exhausting. And so sometimes- cesspool. He, Twitter's a cesspool. It's horrible. And so sometimes like he, he would respond to them. He gets so frustrated. He's like, why can they hate on me? But the second I respond to them and shut them down, I'm a bad person for doing it. And like, because listen, the reality is they have maybe 50 followers. Maybe it's a burner account. Maybe they have none. And so nobody sees except for you when they tweet the mean things that they're saying to you. But nobody also sees the influx and how many of these mean tweets that you're getting. So if people saw that, they would feel differently, but they don't. And so then all of a sudden you take this one person who maybe has 50 followers. And so maybe 50 people saw this mean tweet. Now you respond to them. Let's say you make them look stupid. You just now insulted them or embarrassed them on a platform with like several hundred thousand followers and people to see it. And that's humiliating. And so now you're the bad guy for basically humiliating someone on this mass platform. When they try to humiliate you, it's not on a mass platform, but when you respond, it is. And so that's why you're kind of looked at as like this bad person. So we had to learn who to respond to, who to not, which was a struggle for him at first. And I think like that was one of the reasons we wanted to get him on part of my tape. So one of my older brothers, he loves part of my take. I never listened to them. So I was like, I have no idea. And I remember him telling me before, he was like, are you sure he wants to be on that? Because they are not always nice to him. 
And I was like, I think it'll be fine. And I think it'll be good for him. And so we worked with his publicist too. And we putting him on there. I think he did great. It went well. And I can't tell you how many people reached out to me and even in him, they were like, I hated you before, but you're not that bad of a guy. And that's the problem is a lot of times it's one thing if they don't like him for who he really is, but people didn't like him for this idea of someone that he really wasn't. And the harassment thing with that girl, he responded like four times. That girl came at him first. And the way Twitter works is like, if any of his fans respond, she's tagged every single time. So this idea that he tagged her and all these things, you know, if he responds to another fan and she happens to be tagged in the thread, it doesn't mean it was at all directed at her, but he's a guy, he's an athlete. And so he's the villain. It sucked. A lot of it sucks when people take things out of context. I'm glad he's been able to kind of slowly shift people's view or at least give people like the real Trevor Bauer versus this Trevor that was just not true. Absolutely. I mean, a couple years ago when he started giving interviews and people were like, this guy is so different. He kind of sounds like a dick. But if you looked past things that just seemed like they were him misrepresenting himself or not really knowing how to convey who he truly is, I was like, aside from all of that, the way that he thinks about baseball, the way that he views the game, the way that he uses his brain to make his body perform better was so brilliant and ahead of its time that I was kind of like, I really hope this guy isn't the way that he's representing himself because the rest of him is so fascinating. And he seems to have evolved into a guy that's more truer to who he is. And I think it's only going to make the other side of him more successful because it's going to give the world more of an opportunity to see that and for more people to become like him and become better athletes because they model themselves after him. And you guys have been doing these videos together. Can you talk a little bit about those in case people who are listening haven't seen them? Because I think that also will go a long way. Now, instead of one of his quotes kind of getting like grabbed and taken out of context, he can go on Pardon My Take and have a platform where it's long and you can breathe and have conversations and people can say like, oh, okay, I maybe would actually be friends with this guy. And then you guys start making these videos to kind of be able to control his messages more. And it's it's the same deal. It's it's him out there laying out his thoughts, no middleman to twist anything. So how did you guys decide to start doing those? I mean, that was largely his idea because of how much trouble he had with the media dating back to really when he first got drafted. He realized everything got taken out of context. And so, I mean, actually recently he started, there was one, I forget what article it was. I want to say it was in the last year or so. And he basically said, he was like, every time I do an interview with the media, he goes, I'm going to take my video camera and just set it up. He's I'll do whatever. I'm not going to shy away from the media, but I want to have my camera going too. So when they try to twist the story and take a part out of context and make it seem one way, that's fine. He goes, I'm just going to respond to it with the full version of the interview so people can really see what was said because he was so sick of how it was done. That's one of the reasons, obviously, the other being that MLB sucks at marketing their game, but that he wanted to create a media company because he wanted to be able to get his messages out without them being twisted or, you know, whatever it was. Media people tend to want clickbaity things and they've got their own angles. And he just wanted to be able to try to convey messages like the way that they were intended to be conveyed and not have to worry about what the media will do and how they'll spin it. 
And then we had kind of talked about with my agency and like myself being transparent. A lot of people don't know what agents do. You don't hear much about anything really from agents. And there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, A lot of times too, I think people want people to think and players to think it's a secret and it's really complicated what they do. And, you know, you don't want to let somebody in because maybe they'll think it's easy or like they're not super valuable or whatever it is. Whereas like I looked at it, it was like being transparent. I think, again, it's different from what everyone else is doing. And why not? When people want to know what a sports agent does, like why not kind of be that face of she'll tell you what an agent does. She'll explain like rules. Even in the beginning, I was trying to look stuff up when I was first trying to get into it. And like there were no resources. No one talked about anything. It was really hard. So I figured, you know, that was a way for just me and my platform to kind of push my brand and what I'm doing and how I'm doing it different and just being transparent. Like that's one of the things that is important to me is transparency and being available for people. It's really refreshing to see, honestly, because I think people kind of view your side of the sports world as this secretive club, agents only. And then for you, the way that you've described your journey into it. You've talked about the boys club side of it. So for you with Luba Sports, what does your future look like? What's next for you? Hopefully to grow it more within baseball. That's obviously the most important goal right now. And then eventually the goal is to branch out into other sports as well. Esports included, uh, entertainment, you know, media, that kind of stuff. But I want to continue with the same model. So whether it's football, basketball, broadcasters, the same kind of agency structure, but just, you know, in different areas and trying to change the landscape for representation. Who would be your dream client? Like any era, any sport? Oh, that's a tough one. I, I, I'm friends with Griffey, but I love him. And it's he's still in baseball. So, it, I mean, even just in terms of business and how he thinks and his personality on field, one of the greatest players, but just off the field too and kind of his brand. I love what he does. And so I, he, I think he would be just a super fun person to work with. In other sports though, to be honest, like I like big personalities. Like I don't shy away from that. So, I mean, even the Jordan doc that just came out, like I know he could be a nightmare for a lot of people. Take the money that he would give agents, you know, aside, just having to deal with a big personality can be difficult. I love it. I think it's a challenge. I don't know if because I'm a female, maybe, and a lot of times dealing with a male personality can be, it's a, it's a different dynamic than for another male to have to deal with another big male ego personality. But I, I love it. I think it's fun. It's challenging. Any athlete or any talent that has just a big personality and isn't afraid to kind of take risks would be a fun client to have, I think. For sure. So we have one question that we're asking everybody that comes on the show. It's kind of just, we're really curious because everyone's had really different sports experiences in their life. So we always ask everybody what your favorite sports memory is. And it can be from your gymnast days, a game that you went to, launching Luba Sports, literally anything. Okay, this is going to go, gymnastics had uh, so many ups and downs and too many to really choose from, but I would say for me, weirdly enough, it would be, so I boxed while I was at UCLA, I got into boxing and competitive boxing. And my first fight, I won by TKO, so knockout. 
And that feeling of one being my first fight, and it was so out of my comfort zone. Obviously, I was training for it, but no idea what to expect going in. It was a new sport for me. And like gymnastics, it's just me and the the event. That's what I was used to. Nobody like is physically combating you. And so I think that just that feeling of holy shit, and like all the hard work that I put in and the mental kind of preparation, it was such an incredible feeling. And just because how draining a boxing fight is, it doesn't compare to anything. And I mean, I've been borderline tortured in gymnastics, and it doesn't compare to trying to survive through a boxing fight. I would say winning my first boxing fight. You just became so much more badass. (laughs) Like even more badass than you already were. I mean, I do like boxing classes for like fitness, but that's not against a person. So I can't even imagine. I get tired just from hitting the bag. It changes it. Like that was the first thing. I remember my coaches telling me, um, I was so eager to get in the ring. I was like, I'm ready. Like, can I just spar? I want to, you know, spar against someone. And I remember my coach like was so against it. He was like, no, like you need to wait. You need to train more. And like, I'm ready. He was like, you don't understand. He goes, when you get in there, one of two things is going to happen. The second someone throws a punch back at you, because first of all, forget everything you're training to do right now. You will inevitably in the beginning, like forget everything. And one of two things will happen. You'll either run the hell out of that ring and be like, I'm not doing this anymore. Like I'm done. This is not for me. Or it's going to like fuel your fire to like hit back harder. Kind of the fight or flight. He was like, I'd rather it be... Yeah, he was like, I'd rather it be the latter. So let's train a little more and we're going to build up to it so that you're not like traumatized and you don't run away from this. But he wasn't wrong. Like the first time someone starts throwing a punch back at you, forget everything you think you know about boxing. You then have to like retrain yourself to learn things when someone's punching back. That's insane. That's so cool. Wow. Okay, so we're going to wrap up. Thank you so much for coming on. This was so informative and cool and just amazing. I mean, you're such a badass. Like, there's really no other way to say it. Where can people find you besides making these videos with Trevor, conquering the sports world? Where can people find you on social media? I'm on Instagram. My handle is Rachel.Luba, R-A-C-H-E-L, L-U-B-A. And then my Twitter is at agent rachel luba with no like punctuation or anything feel free to follow me on there awesome rachel thanks so much thank you uh, if trevor does decide that the red Sox would be a good fit for him (laughs) we'll roll out the welcome wagon we could use some bower power thank you again yeah thanks for having me on guys i appreciate it that was fun Okay, so that was our interview with Rachel Luba, and we hope you guys think it was worth bumping the Keith Folk interview. Um, No offense to you, Keith. We're just trying to keep up with the 24-hour news cycle. Twitter never stops. So we just wanted to get this conversation with Rachel to you as soon as possible and give you a little bit of inside information from someone who is working on this day and night for her own clients who want to get back to playing baseball so badly. And we hope you enjoyed it. But don't worry, the Keith Folk episode is coming up next later this week. But in the meantime, you can follow us on social media at Girl at the Game and download, subscribe, and leave us a rating on iTunes, Spotify, or Libsyn. 
And don't forget to share the pod with your friends. Thanks so much for tuning in. And we'll send you out with some Keisha Cole and Diddy. One of both of our favorite songs from way back. Baby, 